You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are delighted today to be joined by two close friends and colleagues from the Kaiser Family Foundation, Jennifer Cates and Josh Michaud. Jennifer is the Senior Vice President at the Kaiser Family Foundation here in Washington, D.C., and Director of Global Health and HIV Policy. Josh Michaud, also based here in Washington, D.C., is Associate Director of Global Health Policy. Thanks for joining us, Jen and Josh. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks. So we we wanted to come together today to talk about the piece that you both published just recently, October 20th, entitled Distributing a COVAX-19 Vaccine Across the United States, a Look at Key Issues. I mean, this was a very striking piece of work in taking on an enormously complicated and difficult and fast-moving subject that is vitally important to Americans now and into the future. It's, it's a quick moving and evolving story. And you did a great job of teasing out what do we know, what do we not know? There's many ambiguities and unknowns still in here. I wanna also mention something we were just discussing with Jennifer and Josh is that they've also begun to take a look at the interim state vaccine plans, which just recently began to arrive and became public. And so we're going to hoping to hear from you also on what do those plans tell us to, to fill in some additional detail here. So why don't we start, Jen, if you could start and Josh add in here, what are the top line messages you wish to convey from this recent analysis and, and, and add on to that, what more have we seen in the interim work on the state vaccine plans? Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Josh, for joining us. Over to you, Jen. Great. And Thanks so much for asking us to talk about this piece. I mean, the motivation for us doing this is really that we are facing, the the global community and the U.S. is facing this unprecedented situation with this pandemic and the, you know, the likelihood that we will have a vaccine or vaccine candidates soon. And then the reality that that would, you know, getting those vaccines to people is going to be a huge challenge. And we wanted to try to understand that and unpack that in as much real time as we could. As you said, this is a really moving target. So we tried to go through what is known. I think there's been, you know, as as many following this have seen, the federal government has taken many steps in, in this regard. And on the research side, the candidates are advancing quickly. But then when you get down to distribution, what will it mean to get the vaccine to people? There's a lot of challenges, questions, unknowns. And one of the big challenges is the U.S. has never had to distribute a vaccine at this scale before, where you there's going to be a need to reach virtually everyone in the United States. So having said that, what we tried to do was go through and identify some of the key hurdles that we saw, or you know, there are things that can be potentially addressed. And I'll just lay out a couple here, and then Josh can pick up. But one big one that we see, and it, and it directly relates to this issue of state plans, is what is going to be the relationship and uh, responsibilities and authorities between the federal government, the states, and local authorities, and the public and the private sector. 
In the U.S., there has been quite a division in terms of authorities between the federal and the state public health entities, of course. That's really challenging when you're dealing with a pandemic. So that's one that we focus on. The other that I'll just mention, and again, to turn it to Josh, is uh, one thing that drives differential vac- vaccination rates in the U.S., whether it's flu or anything else, is different state policies and approaches. So some states mandate vaccines, most don't. That is an issue that may have to be confronted. The other issue is insurance coverage and access. And we know that varies incredibly across the country and is very complicated in the United States. And that plays a big role in whether people are getting vaccines or not and their perception of whether they can get them. So that's just, (laughs) I've just touched on a few of the things. I'll turn it to Josh to pick up on a few more. Sure. Thanks, Jen. And thanks, Steve and and CSIS for hosting us and giving us this opportunity to talk about this analysis. You know, just building on what Jen has already said, I think we, along with many other people, recognize that this process of distributing a vaccine is, as Jen said, going to be an unprecedented challenge. And you know, we had seen uh, some work looking at different pieces of this challenge, but really wanted to get out there a broad look at the policy areas that might need to be addressed or will have to be addressed in order to have a successful, equitable, efficient distribution of vaccine uh, in the United States. So this is a big picture look. And and, and each one of these areas that we touch on, uh, you know, will require much, much more in-depth work and analysis. And the other thing is that, you know, clearly some progress has been made in these areas, you know, the the government is working with states and local health departments uh, on these very areas, but a lot of this happens out of the public view. And it's unclear, I think, to many people, you know, where we stand in terms of our readiness to distribute a vaccine. So that's another thing to highlight these and get people thinking about what needs to happen in these areas for vaccine distribution to be successful. So in addition to the areas that Jen mentioned, you know, some of the other topics that we touch upon, I'm sure we'll talk more about them are the fact that much of this happens at the state and local level. So uh, the fact that there hasn't been the kind of support that you would expect in terms of funding, guidance, and technical support to state and locals for vaccine distribution, at least to date, you know, gives us pause and is something we can talk more about. And there are aspects of our uh, health system in the United States, which are incredibly complex, of course, and uh, how things get paid. And so we highlight a number of areas where there there might be some gaps in coverage in terms of insurance, out-of-pocket costs for vaccines in the various government programs that are supposed to um, support distribution and covering the costs of these vaccines. And then the, the very important areas of you know, addressing racial and ethnic disparities, these communities that have been disproportionately affected by uh, COVID-19 to date, and the necessary work that needs to be done to build communication and build up trust in the vaccine itself. Um, So, and as you mentioned, you know, after we wrote up this uh, report and released it, states have been releasing their own more detailed plans addressing many of these areas. And we can go into some detail from what we know about the state plans as to how they address some of these areas as we go, I think. That'd be good. You know, I I think for a lot of people, it's a bit of a mystery as to how this process is going to work for something that's so momentous and complicated and such huge scale across our entire country. And so much is hanging on this in terms of our ability to try and get out from underneath this virus at the point at which we have some safe and effective vaccines. 
we're then in this world of how the hell are we going to do this? How are we going to get this stuff out? Mm -hmm. And you've tried to impact that. And what do the, these, these plans that are starting to come in on deadline to Washington from the state, what do those reveal? What do those tell us in terms of the thinking at that level, the thinking at the state level? Well, we are in the process of going through these plans. Uh, so far, we've identified, I think, 40 of the state plans that have been publicly released. So uh, we don't have all of the state plans yet. Yeah. One thing to note is you know, CDC is not making these available in a central location. So you have to kind of find them. And that's one, I think, from a transparency perspective, that's a challenge, right? So yeah. we, we spent a lot of energy trying to locate them. And now, uh, as Josh mentioned, we're going through them. Yeah. And, and, you know, so we, we don't have a full picture yet because, you know, these some of them are 100 page plans and we're just sort of getting through these sure. uh, as we go. But, you know, there's certain areas that come you come across that are common across all of these plans, at least the ones that we've looked at. And they include this process of identifying who the priority populations are, I think, is is an important one. And clearly, the guidance that comes from the federal level in terms of the National Academies of Medicine uh, recommendations around priority populations, the forthcoming recommendations from the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices that we expect to lay out some more detail and what populations are prioritized for receiving vaccines will be important, but each state determines what its priority populations are. Often they'll look to federal guidance, of course, but you know when it comes down to the details, they're going to be the ones that have to identify and actually uh, you know, define these individuals who fit into these different categories. And from what we've seen in the state plans, some, some states are much further along in that process, actually providing specific numbers of, you know, first responders or specific numbers of healthcare workers that are in high risk environments that would be targeted in that early phase of the, the distribution plan. Whereas other states are still very much at least in their plans behind on that and, and not able yet to say, you know, how many people they have identified in each of these groups. So that's, you know, one aspect. And another important aspect, I would say, uh, there are many, but another one to highlight is that in distributing the coronavirus vaccine, states will rely on a network of providers that is much broader than the typical set of providers that they normally work with, especially when it comes to you know, vaccination. Typically, state and local health departments are working with pediatricians' offices and perhaps you know, pharmacies and places like that. But they have to expand the group of providers because so much of the effort is here is going to be vaccinating adults, which is not the typical emphasis for you know, state and health departments' vaccination plans. So that means identifying who those providers are, enrolling them, you know, vetting them and all of that. So, so states are in very different places when it comes to that process as well. Would you, I mean, just holding for a moment, I mean, the, when you're looking across in your, in the piece that you just did on where are the gaps and where are the uncertainties and now looking a quick scan at some of the state plans, would you say that there's cause for alarm? Would you say that there's steady progress and things are moving forward. How did you characterize sort of where we are in preparing, in laying the groundwork for all of these different things? They have to, they have to come up with a plan for which, who gets phase one, 
phase two, phase three, they have to come up with a plan of who are the providers going to be. There has to be some clearance, a decision process at state and local levels. There has to be some clearance that happens. Are we in the middle of a process that's likely to be quite chaotic? Or is it your feeling that it's going to be a little messy, but we have reason to be some more confident that based on what we know today, that it's not going to be chaotic. How would you each sort of respond to that question of where are we and are we heading into a big mess or is this going to be kind of bumpy, but okay? How would you characterize it? I would say that I'm, I'm concerned, it's bordering on alarmed. So some of the concern and, and feeling of alarm is based on the fact that this is unprecedented. And Correct. Would, yeah. No matter what... No matter the political environment or anything like that, this would be a huge undertaking that would face incredible obstacles. I also think you layer on top of that Americans' experience of the last several months in this country struggling to try to see the way forward, and that just complicates it. I, I, I think it's going to be a, more than a bumpy road. I think that there's going to be a need to combat what has been a real partisan split in views on how to address COVID with how to deal with the vaccine. And that's going to hit right up against fears of vaccines in general and vaccines, vaccine hesitancy, some of which is related to partisanship and some of which is not. And so the sociocultural and political factors, let alone the economy, are really huge impediments to uh, a smooth rollout, even if everything else was aligned. And we know everything else is not aligned. On the positive side, I will say that setting out my alarm and my fear, but on the positive side, unlike other areas of the COVID response, so testing or contact tracing, where frankly, there hasn't been a national federally strong approach. Correct. There has been on vaccines. Mm-hmm. Got, the federal government has has you know pushed forward really rapidly on, on discovery and, and R&D, has uh, operation warp speed, has plans, has release. That's different than it's been with other things. Um, so that's positive. But, you know, there hasn't been, I think, uh, the effort also to manage public expectations about what a vaccine means. Um, even a very good vaccine, what does that actually look like when you start to distribute it? How long that takes, what efficacy means and what effectiveness means? And then why you might still be needing to wear a mask. So none yes. of that has been done. Yes. So I'm concerned. Josh, how do you come down? You can differ from Jan, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're usually of the same mind on much of this. So I, I agree that there's a lot to be concerned about. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to put this together and put it out there. But in the course of putting this together, uh, you know, we realized just exactly how much of a logistical and technical, you know, feat this is going to be to do this right. You know, in my mind, there's a lot of work to do. And this, you would have hoped that a lot of this work would have been already in the works for a long time at this point. And from the outside looking in, it's not clear that a lot of this has, you know, taken place. And so, you know, my worry on the, on the, just the logistical and and technical side is whether or not the groundwork has been laid 
for what is going to be this unprecedented effort. Plans on a piece of paper are one thing, but you know, practicing them and making sure that they work uh, well in advance of actually having to deliver these vaccines is going to be something else entirely. So, you know, and layer on one other aspect of this is that we're, of course, in the midst of a presidential election and, and a, a potential change in administration, a, a potential change in Congress also might affect how this all happens because that transition period occurs just as we expect these first vaccines to be rolling out. What effect will that have? And will it complicate things more? Or will it clarify the government's role? Uh, that remains to be seen. So, so much of this is still undecided in the black box, which makes it uh, that much more daunting, I'd say. Andrew, come on in. Yeah, thank you, Steve. And thank you to Jen and Josh. Jen, I, I want to expand on something you just said, and that's partisanship. And also, I want to ask you about the obstacles that governments at the state and federal level are going to be facing when it comes to um, people who are worried about taking vaccines in general. Can you first tell me about sort of the anti-vaccination population? And then maybe does that, does it go beyond that? Are people just mistrustful of the vaccine in this case. And then I want to ask, you know, what is the partisanship surrounding this? Does this really fall upon Republican and Democrat lines? Okay, so there's a lot in that question. So let me start with some of the obstacles states and local health uh, officials will face on specifically on vaccines. And one that we didn't talk too much about yet is, is funding. And I just want to get that out there, which which is that, you know, we know from many analyses that state local public health has been underfunded for years. Um, so the infrastructure at the state level is poor in, in many places just for, for basic public health. You know, public health is not something people usually see unless there's a crisis and it's been underfunded. You layer on top of that the fact that with the economy in the state that it's in, revenues at the state level are have fallen. And so the state budgets that help support local public health are also stretched. So it's like a double whammy. And so far in the economic and other the fiscal relief bills that have been passed by Congress, there hasn't actually been that much specifically designated for state and local public health. And for vaccines, actually not much at all that's been you know, earmarked for that purpose. And thus far, the federal government has, through these bills, has provided just $200 million to states and local governments for a COVID vaccine rollout. Just 200 million. I mean, in some states, that's barely anything. So they're really strapped. So their their ability, I think, to get the systems up that Josh had mentioned or to deal deal with uh, raising awareness about this vaccine or vaccines is very limited. Do we have a sense, Jen, of what the financing gap will be? So there's been different estimates, but actually Dr. Redfield from CDC uh, in a testimony said that he estimated that $6 billion was needed. I've seen eight billion and 10 billion. So we're talking, you know, several billions more uh, has been estimated to be needed needed at the state and local level. And in fact, one of the challenges, this goes a little bit to sort of politics and partisan struggles, is that the fifth fiscal relief bill has stalled, stalled, as you know, and both the Democratic version and the Republican version included state money for vaccines. So that has not happened, and that's at a standstill and unlikely to happen for a bit. So, you know, that money would be needed now as states prepare to do all of these challenging things, and they don't have it. Secondly, on on what states are facing in terms of, is it anti-vax? Is it vaccine hesitancy? Is it concerns about safety? It's all of the above. And I think 
one thing we haven't touched on that's really critical here is this this pandemic has had such a disproportionate impact on communities that have all often been left out of the healthcare system or face challenges in the healthcare system, particularly racial and ethnic minorities who have valid concerns about the medical establishment. And so there's also the issues of trying to gain public trust and confidence that the medical system is going to be helping and, and, and trying to solve a problem that exists as opposed to being afraid that they will, that people will be victims of something else. So it's all of those together are what states are going to have to confront just purely from um, a vaccine perspective. And then there's the partisan aspect of this where you have um, some people, just to be very extreme about the views, you have some people saying, I'm not going to take a vaccine if Trump says it's I should take it. And you have other people saying, I'm not going to take a vaccine unless Trump says I'm going to. You know. So we're at this point in America that's not a healthy one from a public health perspective. And that really, I think, is going to make it very difficult, particularly for state and local health authorities to manage. And just look at what's happening with masks, where people who are just trying to carry out a basic public health measure are getting threatened by saying to somebody, you should wear a mask. Well, you also have the complication that the libertarian herd immunity crowd is gaining a, is gaining ascent. Roger Atlas at the White House, the Great Barrington Declaration, these three academics that are basically arguing we don't need a vaccine as a solution. I mean, they're, they're saying that we protect our elderly and we retreat from masks, we retreat from social distancing, we reopen, and by implication, they're not saying, you know, immunity comes through natural infection, not through protection or uh, an immunity conferred through a vaccine. We have a very complicated environment. Let me take this a step further um, along with those lines. And this is obviously highly speculative, but okay, let's say Trump loses and let's say, you know, the, the Senate stays the same or the Senate loses. The Republicans lose the Senate. Do you worry that people from the Trump administration, including the president Trump himself, would try to say, you know, in a Biden administration, don't trust them and take their vaccine or don't listen to them or, you know, are you envisioning things like this to, to further divide us along partisan lines? So, Andrew, thanks for stressing me out even more today. But, uh, <laughs> uh, well, Josh, you can start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a frightening prospect. I don't know if we've uh, considered that specific scenario there. But, uh, you know, I don't know how much more can be thrown on the partisan fire that's already existing. You know, we've noted in in our own public polling at, at the Kaiser Family Foundation of people's attitudes towards vaccines that uh, people are becoming more distrustful of vaccines over time. Uh, and that's reflected in other polling as well. And, you know, people are more reluctant. And I think that it's a reflection of the fact that people are seeing it become tied so closely with politics and partisanship. And so you get bifurcated into sides, uh, depending you know, how you view the vaccine is depending on what your political leaning is. And that's no place to be from a public health perspective. I mean, you already have this a little bit on the Democrat side, you know, Biden and others suggesting they don't trust the Trump administration's policy on vaccines or, you know, they won't trust it unless the doctors in the Trump administration, meaning, you know, Fauci, Burks, people they trust those doctors as opposed to, you know, doctors they don't trust like Dr. Atlas. So you already have, you already see this, you know, along partisan lines from the Democrats, you know, imagine if you see it from both sides. 
Yeah, I think given our current situation and, and the election season and everything, there it's almost impossible to avoid that all entirely. And you know, in in the case of of a change in administration, you know, similar arguments would be made on either side just to fan the flames of, of, of partisanship. But they're really un tethered from the reality of the situation and, you know, the independence that the FDA and, and, and others have shown in, so far in terms of actually seemingly doing the right thing in terms of their regulatory oversight of the development of these vaccines. We would hope that would continue and that if that does, then that would, you know, suppress anything except the most extreme, you know, views on this. But I do think we can come out of this with at least a scientific consensus that vaccines are safe, they're effective, uh, and this is the evidence that shows that they are. And for that reason, we can move forward with the vaccination effort with, you know, this is my hopeful view, <laughs> a minimum of, of uh, you know, partisan undermining of that effort. May I just play devil's advocate for a moment around the partisanship argument? And what I mean to say is a couple of things. Operation Warp Speed so far has has escaped controversy and excess partisanship. Now its its work has been largely in the acceleration of product development, getting getting vaccines for in human field trials, but also preparing the ground with support from the from the Army Material Command preparing the ground for the distributions and the like. But General Perna and Monsef Salawi from GSK, the two lead partners, have begun speaking out more, being more transparent. They have not been accused of gross partisanship. And in fact, that effort has gotten pretty good marks by most folks. They're waiting to see what happens. But that's one thing. A second consideration is that state and local authorities are being vested with leadership responsibility in moving forward the plan. That, I think, is an effort at trying to move it away from Washington and in, and have local leadership charged with this. And if you, in some places, you may have very divided states, and we've got plenty of them that are, that are very divided, but there's going to have to be some sorting out there. The third thing I wanted to emphasize is that vaccines, if we have a safe and effective vaccine, yes, there's going to be all of these swirling factors that are creating confusion and doubt. We've seen that all documented, but still to be able to go to a citizen of whatever partisan description and say, this is your key to getting out from underneath this virus and the economic crisis it creates and the instability in communities. This is a way to get back into schools, get back to work, get back to seeing your families, being able to travel in the country outside, recreate, go back to church, all of those things that have been taken away from us come back if we're able to combine this with continued behavioral interventions and local capacity building for chasing down those. And that argument, I think people are getting, they're very fatigued and exhausted and we're entering a surge period that's going to scare people even more. If we hit two and 3,000 deaths per day, as, as some are projecting. But I think a calmer voice coming from advocates saying, yes, we have confidence these are safe and effective and more of it. This is really how this is going to, I think a lot of people who have said they're really very hesitant can be coaxed towards a good solution through a sort of rational, that this is going to reopen their lives and bring back things that have been missing. I also agree with you that the, 
The interregnum between November 3rd and January 20th looks very uncertain to me. And that interregnum is a long, that's a lot of days in between November 3rd and January 20th. We could have a lot of chaos in that period on top of having the surge happening in that period. So that period could be time lost or disrupted in moving forward these preparations. So I've just tried to be a devil's advocate and now I flip back into the pessimist side of things. Jen and Josh, what's your what's your thoughts? Yeah, I think I, I see I can actually see both those scenarios playing out and hard to know what's going to happen. But one thing you said that I also think a lot about, which is on the hopeful side, is one of the challenges we faced in the last several months is, you know, we haven't consistently seen the scientists and the public health experts be the voice of what the public needs to, to hear. And, and that has taken a toll for sure. So yes, it's also been, you know, that there, that science has been called into question, which is very problematic, but also the, the voices have had to, you know, they've been sort of shut out from the, the official governmental response in many ways. So if that were to change, if there was a, as you mentioned, like a consistent, more unified based on the science, based on the data messengers that were out there. And I think that would empower state and local health officials as well, who frankly have been looking to the federal government for these past months to try to figure out what they should do. And when they haven't gotten it, have tried to do their own thing, sometimes better than others. And so I think if, if, it could turn this around when when that more consistent message driven by science is clear. And complemented by the groups that stand the most to benefit from this. I mean, employers, people who work in packing totally. plants, educators, university heads, heads of primary yeah. and secondary schools. I mean, you can just go all across those sectors of our economy. Yep that need to stand up and speak loudly about the need for for this to move ahead because they are they stand the mo- they have the most to lose and they have the most to gain. Yeah. And in fact, um speak one other constituency even with the partisan challenges, the National Governors Association who in behalf of all the governors has been pretty, you know, strongly saying to the federal government, you know, we need more support for va- the vaccine enterprise that we're going to be undertaking. They are they get it. They mm-hmm. want to do it. And as, you know, all the governors are, are have said this to to the federal government. I would only add that you know, and we're left speculating because we don't know exactly how effective these vaccines will be, and the end result could depend heavily on the actual effectiveness of the vaccine. If we have a highly effective vaccine that's also very safe and proven to be safe. That scenario, you would have a lot of people won over to the idea of vaccination. If you have an equivocally uh, effective vaccine, and the, currently the target is to reduce serious illness, uh, you know, by fifty percent at, at a minimum. If you have a vaccine that is right around that kind of benchmark, then it becomes much more cloudy, and there's a gray area there, and people would not necessarily be jumping as excitedly uh, to get that vaccine as they would for a much more effective vaccine. So, so some of this will play out depending on the actual, you know, results of these trials and what we think about these vaccines as well. Thank you. Andrew? I just wanted to follow up on, to ask about Operation Warp Speed again. How, do you, how are you judging its performance so far? 
Well, you know, we're on the outside looking in and from the outside looking in, I think I would mostly agree with how Steve has characterized it in that it seems to be moving the critical aspects of vaccine research and development and the scale up of the manufacturing needed to get to where we need to be in a mostly you know, non-partisan way that's supported by, by most parties. That, that in itself is an achievement, but it's also secretive. We don't know exactly everything that's going on and, and, and the contracts with the, the various pharmaceutical companies and the details of within are not clear and uh, you know, have been un, we've been able to, to digest all the details. And, and if those come to light, there might be some issues that we currently don't know about, which we might uh, have a problem with it. But, you know, their goal clearly was to get us in a, into a position in the U.S. where we could be delivering vaccines early next year in the hundreds of millions of doses range. And by all accounts, we're well on the way there. So, you know, I think they've been doing a pretty good job. There might be some misconceptions about it. And I think people believe that when we get to the point of having to distribute vaccines, that the U.S. military will be heavily involved in getting the vaccine to people, you know, civilians. But that's actually not the case. And the military's engagement on Operation War Speed has been on the, the backside, the logistics, and making sure that all of the groundwork is there for the distribution. But the actual distribution itself will not occur through the military, by and large. Right. And you had a statement from the president to that effect during the most recent debate that had to be corrected. But the DOD, what DOD does bring to the table, what the Army Material Command under General Perner brings to the table, is enormous contracting capacity. They have the ability to contract the FedExes and UPSs and, and you know, air land delivery systems, as well as, as providers and a whole host of others. And we are looking, it seems to me, at a very complicated patchwork of interests that are going to become this machine for delivery that's going to be this mix of private and public providers trying to get towards the local level. And that is that is unprecedented. That that level of mobilization goes way beyond what we do on chips on the childhood program for the annual program of immunization. One other thing I wanted to follow on and, and Andrew's question around it, how do we feel, what's the performance Operation Warp Speed, is also the question of is Operation Warp Speed just a temporary thing? Or do we think it's something that is proving a, a larger truth around the need for something like this as a permanent feature of preparedness in the United States. And are we going to see this kind of morph into, into a freestanding or longstanding sort of structure that that is there for preparedness purposes for getting us? I mean, I almost think, how can it not? Right. You know, uh, when you first started to ask that question, what I was, what I, where I thought you were going was something I was thinking earlier, which is and there might have been, I think, a news report or two on this is, you know, what happens if Biden's elected? What happens to Operation Warp Speed? And I, you know, I very much hope that the answer is it goes on. And, you know, if there's things that we need to learn more about it, and as Josh mentioned, maybe there's some more transparency needed or whatever, but to interrupt the flow of all operations would, would be very short-sighted. I don't think that's going to happen, but it, you know, since it has been put out there in the mainstream media, I wanted to mention that I've seen that and I, I don't. I don't expect that to be the case, but it, you would hope that nothing would slow down where we are. And I do think it has 
demonstrated that there are different ways of doing research and development in the United States, given all the rules and needs of, of protocols and things we have, there's different ways to do this. It's, it's proof of concept. And I, I do think it will change the way we do things going forward. I also think on this question of um, does it survive the change, a change of power from a Republican to a Democratic administration? Keep in mind, I mean, we've got a lot of different governors of different political stripes who all face a certain urgent problem, and they are very dependent upon their their co- the cooperation they're going to be receiving from Operation Warp Speed. And they're not going to want to see disruptions for partisan reasons. Uh, they're going to want to see delivery. They got screwed in the first round on PPE and test kits and everything else. They've had a searing experience on the response to COVID-19, and they're seeing a much different sort of response on this side of the equation on the preparation, the accelerated development of vaccines and the preparations for when they may be delivered. And, and, and they're off to a much better start. And I'm sure they don't want to see this, this go down the tubes. Andrew? Well, yeah, I mean, I just, now you're seeing rural communities experience, you know, a lack of preparedness at a, at a grand scale because of the overwhelming cases they're experiencing as well. And, and I guess the final question I wanted to ask is, is there a need for a clear and dedicated strategy for addressing rural communities, but also for you know urban communities, minorities, Black, Latinx, Native Americans? The answer is yes, of course. You know, in order to get the vaccine to the number of people that need it, they reside in all different kinds of communities. And some of those have been historically underserved, including, you know, the racial and ethnic minority communities as well as the communities in rural, you know, tribal groups as well. Um, and a lot of that planning and implementation of distribution to those groups will occur at the state level. And these state plans in operationalizing the guidelines that the federal government provides in support of the states, but it's going to be the states that are going to be, you know, state and local health departments which are going to be the ones that have to do the work on the ground to get vaccines to those communities. And if you have states in very different places in their ability to you know, identify those communities, reach out to those communities, deliver to those communities, you're going to have a patchwork of results, which, you know, we saw in previous massive distributions of vaccines in 2009 with H1N1, we had very different outcomes in terms of distribution of vaccines across states and within different communities in states. States in their current COVID-19 vaccine plans recognize that and are, you know, are trying to build upon the lessons there. But again, this is one area where much work needs to be done in order to fill the gaps that we know exist. And, you know, without the additional support from the federal government, uh, technical guidance, perhaps from the federal government, especially for states which have, you know, uh, less resourced uh, health departments, then you're going to have a big gap and continue to see these disparities that we've seen in so many areas. You know, we try to end these podcasts on a hopeful note, and we ask you all to share with us what you think is the the greatest source of optimism and hope. But before we ask that question, I want to ask you both, what are you most worried about? Like, what really is striking fear in you right now? Jen? What's striking fear in me, among many things, is this third wave will be very bad the coming months. Um, I'm not saying it will necessarily be, it's not inevitable, but it could be at a level that we have, you know, that 
a lot of us in public health have been worried about. And, and I would say that's that's a big one. And then the second is, um, I know no one wants to hear this, but you know, what if next year we have another outbreak of another sort and we're still dealing with this one? We are not ready at all. Josh? Yeah, you know, there's so many things to be afraid of here uh, and so many areas that need to be addressed. Just got to prioritize those paranoias. <laughs> you know, I, I, I worry that the vaccines will won't be as effective. If I'm going to be concerned about something, you know, that would be a concern. Maybe they're not as effective as people expect them to be, especially in terms of interrupting the transmission of the virus. Perhaps they're good at reducing the symptoms. And, but if they don't really interrupt transmission, then we're talking about a completely different type of vaccination effort than one where we're trying to reach herd immunity, right? So if if that's the case, then it, it just presents an even more lengthy, drawn out process of getting to where we need to be in terms of returning to some somewhat to normality with even with vaccines in place. You know, we're going to continue to have to do the things that we're already doing in terms of social distancing, masking, etc. And that might lead to some significant disillusionment on people's parts if the vaccine doesn't turn out to be as effective as many are hoping it will be. Let's get to the get to the positive side of the equation here. You've told us what, what's keeping you awake and what's scaring you the most. So what gives you the greatest hope and optimism now? What gives me the greatest hope has been what has from the beginning, which is I have confidence and faith in our scientific community. And I've been incredibly impressed by, you know, outside of the, what we hear in the sort of airwaves and on social media, the collaboration that's going on among scientists from all over the world, from within the United States, from different industries, it's, is, is, is phenomenal. And and amazing. And some of the best scientists and public health experts are focused on this, laser focused on this. And I have, that gives me a lot of hope. And I think that's going to get us out of this. I'd say that the, you know, in reading the plans that are out there by the, put out by the states, it's clear that state health departments and state leaders are really invested in making this thing work uh, and are doing the best they can, given the limited resources and staffing that they have, in order to make sure that it does work. So I'm buoyed by the clear dedication shown by state and local health leaders who are going to be the ones ultimately that determine the success of this distribution program. I mean, if they don't have the support of the federal government, uh, then it will make their job that much harder. So given the fact that we, we can expect or we would hope that additional funding, additional support for this vaccination will be coming from the federal level, it's going to be the hard work of the dedicated people at the state and local health department level that are going to make this work. And so far, they've shown themselves, you know, ready to try and do their best. Well, thank you so much. Congratulations on this really impressive piece you've put out. We look forward to the, the subsequent piece on the state plans. And, and thanks again for just all the contributions and leadership that each of you have shown in this period. We're very much in the debt to Kaiser Family Foundation and to each of you. And thanks for spending the time with us today. It's been a great conversation. Thank you all. Be well. You too. Thanks, Stephen and yeah. Andrew and CSIS. Thanks. Thanks.